0: All right, this morning we're going to get back into the series that we postponed for Passion Week and Easter, the series on stewardship. And this morning we want to look at the grace of giving, and we're eventually going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, which is Paul's magnum opus text on the subject of giving. But I just want to do a little review and do quite a bit of context this morning, more than usual, because it's so critical to understanding the passage. Um, When you you go to a passage, passages have context, they have historical settings, and if you don't understand that context and that historical setting, a lot of times it makes the passage very difficult to understand. So far we have looked at Deuteronomy chapter 8, where we learned that God um, owns everything. We learned that God gives us everything that we have, and we're merely stewards of what He has given us. We also learned that God gives us the power to make wealth, that any ability you have to make wealth was given to you by God. And we also learned that God wants us to be thankful for all that we have, whether it be a small amount or a very large amount. He wants us to give Him thanks for what He has given us. We also spent some time in Malachi 3 where we learned some other important principles. We learned about tithing. We learned that tithing was neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament standard of giving. Sure, in the Old Testament, they were to give two different tithes every year and every third year another tithe, which works up to 23%. But we also learned that in addition to that, they were to do other things like offer a first first fruits offering. This is something that uh, was not a certain percentage, although later on the Jews required, they they said it was at least 1 16th. The scriptures don't say that. And that is, at the beginning of the year, when we started to harvest the best, the first parts of your harvest, you would offer to God as much as you wanted. You also had to leave the corners of your field. Unharvested. It didn't say how big the corner should be, but that you were to do it for the poor. Not only that, every seven years you were to let your land lie fallow. Not only that, every seven years you were to forgive all the debts that um, you held against other people. Not only that, you were to, every 50 years, give um, not only all the debts back, but you give all property back to its original owner. And all of these things were all required. Now, in addition to that, you also had to give this whole series of voluntary offerings. The offerings were commanded, but they were self-initiated. In other words, God says, if you sin, you know, you need to go offer a sin offering. So depending on how honest you were and how godly you were, you would be offering more, wouldn't you? But when you look at all of this, you find out that that giving in the Old Testament was quite a bit more than 10%, you know, maybe 40, 50, 60%. And one of the reasons we discovered why this was, is that in the Old Testament, the The governmental system was also the religious system. The two were one and the same. When you gave to the priests and you gave to the religious system, you were also giving to the government. This is called a theocracy. And if there was a king like David who would be a godly king, it would be a theocratic monarchy where God would rule the nation through a godly current king. And so when we came to Malachi, we said there was important to realize that we are not um, under a theocracy. It's also important to realize that we are not under the law of Moses and the blessings and curses of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. When we disobey, the curse of the law does not come upon us because Christ has become a curse for us. He took upon himself the curse of the law. But there are still principles that are true. And those principles are that God expects us to give, that he will bless us in proportion to our giving to him. We notice that this is what the Old Testament teaches. It teaches it in Malachi 3, for instance. And then we looked at it in Luke chapter 6, verse 38. And let me just remind you of that. Luke six thirty eight says, Jesus speaking, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Now, in the um, in the Old Testament economy, as you know, in New Testament times, even um, when you were out shopping and you wanted to buy something, they didn't say, do you want paper or plastic? They never said that because they didn't have paper or plastic. Um, you just had to take it home every, whatever way you wanted to. I mean, they, they brought it there and you had to get it home. And so some people might carry a basket, but a lot of people would just, they have this very loose fitting clothing and they would just bunch some of it up and grab it and just load it up in their lap, would just use it as kind of a pouch and they would just carry it, you know, like a little pouch, a little purse and put stuff in there and that is what Jesus is referring to here he says if you give it will be given to you he says and he's speaking about God giving back to you and he says it will be so much that it will be in your lap as something that is pressed down that is compact and dense that it will be shaken together you know like when you get a box of cereal you know it's when they first pack them they're all the way up at the top and then after they get rattled down you know they're two thirds of what they used to be they're shaken down to to a lower level but he says this will be pressed down shaken down but still running over God will bless you super abundantly as you give so we give him back to you but super abundantly and Jesus said for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return if you are generous God will be generous and when God's generous he's really generous And so that is a principle we saw that is still true. And the principle is still true, we learned from Malachi, that you can still rob from God. Even though you don't have to pay a tenth and you aren't under the Mosaic law, God still commands you to give, even as a New Testament believer. And if you don't do that, you will be robbing from God. We looked also at Luke 12, where we learned some other good principles about giving. You remember what happened? There was the guy in the crowd and... And he's he's uh, wanting to use the crowd to manipulate his brother to give him some inheritance. So he just stands up brazen and says, you know, teacher, tell my brother to you know give me the inheritance. And Jesus sees that this man has a problem with greed. And so he warns them, be on guard against every form of greed. For he says, not even when a man has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And then he goes into the parable of the rich fool. This guy who had a major, I mean, my problem. He stores up all the stuff. He makes bigger barns. He tears them down. And then he says to himself, you know, I am going to eat, drink, and be merry for a long time and retire and have a really great time. And God says, you fool. You are a fool. Why? Not because he had an abundance. We learned that some of the godliest people in the Bible had an abundance. God doesn't care if you have an abundance. If you live in America, you do have an abundance. But he says you fool to this rich man because he was not rich towards God in the process of gaining this wealth. He was stingy and hoardy and and greedy and he just kept all the stuff to himself and he thought that he was going to be using it on himself. And God says, I'm going to take you home tonight and you are a fool because you are not rich towards God. So we learned that whether you have lots of possessions or a few, you need to beware of greed to watch out for covetousness and you need to be rich towards God no matter how much you have. Otherwise, you will be heaping up judgment against yourself when you fail to give. Now, that's what we've learned so far. This leads us to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. But we aren't going to go there yet. Let me just give you a little bit of background to 2 Corinthians, and then we're going to go someplace else, and then we'll finally come back there. In 2 Corinthians, you need to understand why this book was written. Now, we know that the church of Corinth had a ton of problems. Lots of problems. I mean, you just need to read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and find out they messed up about everything. They, they had personality cults, and they, they had problems with um, immorality, and they had problems with suing each other. And they had problems with spiritual gifts, and problems with loving each other, and problems with the gift of tongues, and problems with the resurrection. I mean, you just go through the book, it's just problems, problems, problems. And Paul had gone there, and then he left, and then he wrote them, First Corinthians, to try and straighten out some of their problems. Then he left, and after he had wrote 1 Corinthians to them, some false teachers came into the church, and they kind of incited a rebellion against Paul. They tried to get the people to question Paul. You know, Paul's just in it for the money. Paul is immoral. Paul is doing this to indulge his flesh. I mean, they started discrediting Paul. So Paul then came back and visited in what he called the sorrowful visit. It's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 2.1, where these false teachers stood up Accused him, slandered him to his face, and no one in the church of Corinth came to his defense. Nobody. And it just, it broke Paul's heart. He left brokenhearted. But then after he left, and after he got over the blow of being hammered by these people that he had nurtured and brought to the Lord and shared the word of God with, he then got a little fired up. And that is when he wrote what is called the severe letter, where he wrote this severe letter to to them and just blasted them about their sin and carnality and their association with these false teachers. And it worked. They got their act together. They kicked out the guys and they seem to be getting back on track. They begin to realize that Paul was an apostle, that he wasn't greedy, he wasn't immoral, that he had been doing what was right. And we don't know what that second letter to the Corinthians was. What we call second Corinthians is really third Corinthians. And so this is kind of the, the, the context of this letter. But in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, there is an additional context, and that is the context of the poor saints of Jerusalem. And you need to understand this also before we look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Now, remember what happened in Acts 2. It was the day of Pentecost, you know, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Pentecost. And it was one of the pilgrimage pilgrimage feasts that people would come and on a pilgrimage and travel from all around the Mediterranean basin to go to Jerusalem to worship there in these certain feasts and Pentecost was one of them and what happened was Jesus had been crucified of course this is the same the exact time that Jesus had been crucified, and he had um, in Acts one ascended into heaven into the sight in the sight of the uh, uh, disciples, and they saw him rise up into heaven. And Jesus told them that they would be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria to the utmost parts of the earth. And then in Acts chapter two, Peter's there, and the disciples are there, and what happens is is the Holy Spirit comes upon them mightily they begin to speak in tongues and perform miracles in each of these different groups of people all around the mediterranean basin who have all these different native dialects they dialects they all hear the apostles speaking the gospel to them in their own native tongue god performs this incredible miracle so everybody can hear the gospel in their own native tongue that is what the gift of tongues is and as they're hearing this, as they're, they're receiving the word of God, thousands of Jews become saved. Thousands of them. You know, a lot of times we think of the church as, well, you know, now it's the time of the Gentiles. And, and it is. But you need to remember that Jews started the church. The apostles were Jews, and those thousands of people who started the foundation of the church were Jews. You remember what Paul said in Romans, that salvation is first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. So the first thing they did is preach to the Jews. They preached to the Jews and thousands of them became saved. And this was the beginning of a big problem. Because now all these people who had brought enough provisions with them from all around the Mediterranean basin to come and, and they were going to, you know, do the Pentecost thing and then they were going to travel back and they would have enough provisions to do that. These people now were, were saved. And their, their longer-awaited Messiah had come and they didn't even know it. And they wanted to hang around with the, the apostles and they wanted to learn from the apostles. They wanted to find out what the apostles were doing. And what they knew about Christ and what they were supposed to do. And they wanted to know all about Jesus. Just tell us everything. And so they didn't go back. And they used up their provisions. And so somebody had to feed them. And that is why when you read in the beginning chapters of Acts, what happened? The, the, the saints who, who didn't live very far away, who lived in the area around Jerusalem, started selling their property. They started selling their possessions. They started bringing money in to the apostles so that the apostles could buy food to meet the needs of all of these new, brand new baby Christian Jewish converts that were all there for, for the, peace, the feast of Pentecost, but who decided to remain on to learn more about the way of Christ. And it put this huge burden on the church. And we remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira, who lied about what they gave and God struck them dead. Well, the reason they were sharing all things in common is because now we have thousands of people who don't even live there, who are now living there to find out about Jesus. And all the Christians who do live there, they're thinking, man, this is worth it, man. We are going to sell our stuff. We're going to take care of our brothers and sisters in Christ because Jesus is the Messiah. And they're really excited about that. But it put a strain, it put a huge strain on those Jewish converts to Christianity who lived in and near Jerusalem. Now, in addition to that, those those Jews who became Christians would suffer persecution from the other Jews. I mean, they would be considered dead. As soon as somebody came to Christ, they would consider them heretics, dead, and would reject them. Then what would happen is, is is some of those Jews had businesses to other Jews. And their whole clientele was Jews and other Jews. And now that they have become Christ, now the whole Jewish community has rejected them. And so they lost their whole business. They lost their whole clientele. Maybe their boss fired them because now they've gone heretic, according to the Jews who hadn't believed in Christ. And so that was also a burden to them. Now, you put that together with the fact that a lot of Jews tried to keep separate from the Gentiles. So in other words, um, the Jews tried to do business with Jews. And, and it's still common today where you have very tight Jewish communities and you, you buy and sell from each other and you do your thing. Um, and that's how it was. So a lot of the those new believers who were Jewish in nationality who had now become Christians had themselves ostracized, pulled back from the the Gentile community, and now they were being ostracized from the Jewish community, and now they had all these needs they had to meet. And so, needless to say, their resources pretty much were drained. In addition to that, in Acts 11.28, this man named Agabus, a prophet, God spoke to him and predicted this huge famine would come upon the land, and it did. And so the Jerusalem church became very poor and this bothered Paul it bothered Paul a great deal because they were undergoing persecution they were poor they were afflicted and so Paul went on a campaign I mean Paul didn't have any money he he just went you know around and make tents just to get by I mean it's not that Paul could just do something about it other than get the other Christians to, to help them so as he traveled around in his missionary journey, he, he said, you know, you need, to, you need to take up an offering. You need to get a collection together because these Jerusalem Christians, they are hurting big time. And remember, some of these Jewish Christians are the ones who helped you when you were there at the birth of the church in Pentecost. And as he went around, surely he would run into people who were there, who did receive the benefits from those Jews, and now they have gone back to their homeland and he says, it's your turn turn to help them. And so Paul had them do this offering. And we find this in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4. So turn there, and you're thinking, are we ever going to get to 2 Corinthians? Oh, it doesn't matter. We've got a lot of Sundays until Jesus comes back, maybe, and we just keep going. But look at look at chapter 16 verses 1 through 4 and follow along as I read this this is this is what Jesus or Paul is talking about here this this offering that was being collected to meet the needs of the Jerusalem saints and now you know why they needed help Paul says now concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the churches of Galatia so do you also on the first day of every week each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come when I arrive whomever you may approve I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem and if it is fitting for me to go also they will go with me. Now, I don't want to get really deep into this text and just, you know, exegete every minutia, because I do want to get to 2 Corinthians sometime. But I do want to go slow enough so that you see the context and what is going on here and take out four principles that you can apply to your life that relate to giving, and then we'll get to 2 Corinthians and take a couple more principles there, and then next week we'll hopefully finish up. But notice what we learn here. Look at 16.1. The first thing we learn here that we are to give to help meet the needs of the saints. Paul encouraged not only the Corinthian church, but the other churches to give to meet the needs of the saints. This tells us this is a universal principle. All churches are to help each other meet the needs of the saints. We are to meet the needs of the saints here. We have a lot of people here and we need to help each other. You know, we give to missionaries. Why? Because they need help. We support poor people in other countries. Why? Because they need help. This is biblical. Giving is a form of worship. And the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, command people to give. To give. Now, the second thing we learn from this is that Paul also teaches systematic regular giving. Notice what he says. On the first day of every week, this is verse 2, each one of you is to put aside and save. He's talking about systematic, planned, regular giving. Now, why does he say the first day of the week? Well, that's when the Christians... and and uh, the beginning of the church met. They met on Sunday, which is the first day of the week. The Jews met on Saturday to worship. And the, the church started meeting on Sunday. Why? Because it was the day that Christ rose from the dead. And so they met on that day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at that time, it was common that people would get paid daily daily. Um, You know, remember the parable of the laborers in the vineyards. How at the end of the day they all received a denarius. They worked a day and got paid. The scriptures told um, uh, those who hired people to pay them that day. And so that was a common practice. They were paid on that day. People who had their own business would make money throughout the week. So it was only logical that at the end of the week, when they gathered together to worship, they would give. And this is the same pattern you would see in the Jewish community as they would worship on Saturday. And every week they would gather together. They would give um, on that Saturday. Now, this text, I don't think, is saying that make sure you give every week, even if you only get paid once every two weeks or once a month. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. He's just talking about planned, regular, systematic giving. You know, let's say you were to get paid every two weeks or once a month, or you had a job where you made lots of money and then didn't make any for a long time. I don't think he's saying, well, you know, average it all out and, you know, give it so you have something to put in every week. No. I think he's saying just be regular and systematic in your giving. And and the, the reason for this is not only for sake of discipline, not only because the Word of God commands it, because it helps the church. The church commits itself to things like electricity, <laughs> water, you know, um, paying the preacher, which is extremely important, <laughs> and, um, and we have secretaries, and we have all kinds of things that we're always having to pay on a regular basis, and so when you are regular and systematic in your giving, it helps the church to plan and budget and be wise stewards of what God has given so that is the wisdom of regular, systematic, planned giving. The third thing we learn in this text is that giving is to be proportional. Now, we're going to see this over and over again. We've not only seen it already, but we'll see it again, too, when we get to chapters 8 and 9. Um, notice what he says here in verse 2. He says, put aside and save as he may prosper. That is proportional Giving Now, a lot of people don't understand what I'm saying here, so I want to just take some time and explain this. This means that if you make more, you give more. If you make less, you give less. It does not mean you give comparatively. It means you give in proportion to how much God has blessed you. Remember, we learned from Deuteronomy, everything you have is God's. You are just a steward of what God has given you. So if God has given you a lot, to whom more is given, more is what? Required. That is proportional giving. Now, it's interesting to note that when they do surveys of people who go to church, this is what they discover. The more people make, the less they give, and the less people make, the more they give, proportionally speaking. Now, you, ask, you, ask, you have to ask yourself, now, why, why is that? Why is it that, you know, the guy who makes 40000 a year gives 10%, and the guy who makes um, 80000 a year gives 5%, and the guy who makes $200,000 a year gives 2%? Why is that? Well, because money can become a God. And the more money you have, the more responsibility you have to manage it. And the more you think about it. But then it can become something that you make your decisions by. Um, money becomes the controller. Rather than the word of God, rather than the glory of God, every decision is a financial decision. Whether it's going to be advantageous to you or not. Whether it is wise um, as far as uh, your portfolio is concerned. And you know, you will, you will talk with people in the church who will never mention their quiet time. Never talk about their, their reading of the scriptures, how they're serving, uh, the blessing people they've shared their faith with. They're just talking about, oh, I made this good investment. Oh, did you see such and such? Oh, the Dow's up. And, you know, they're always talking about their investments and their things. And, and money has consumed them. And it begins to control them. And it becomes, you know, the, the north star of their life. It's the guiding principle that they sail by. And that's, they're just captured by money. And that's why Jesus said it is harder um, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than a than camel to be crushed through the eye of a needle. And he says, with men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. God's grace is able to overcome men's devotion and servitude to money. But the whole principle is this, is that people who have more money tend to not want to let it go. And the reason is they do comparative giving rather than proportional giving. And this is what I mean by that. Some guy who, let's say, makes a million a year. He looks at the guy who who makes forty thousand a year, and, and the guy who's making forty thousand gives ten percent, so he's giving four thousand dollars. But the guy who's making a million, you know, I'm really going to bless the church, and I'm going to give twice as much as that guy. I'm going to give eight thousand. And see, in his mind, he feels good about that because I gave twice as much as that other guy. But what he doesn't realize is that God has blessed him. 250 times more than the guy who makes 40,000 a year, if he's making a million a year. And because of that, his responsibility to give is 250 times greater. Because to whom more is given, more is required. A person who makes a million dollars a year has been blessed 25 times more than this other guy who makes 40,000 a year and he could give 50%, let's say, and then suffer on 500,000 a year. <laughs> Would you like to suffer on that? <laughs> and even, af- even after he's given let's say 50% of his million dollars a year, he still has 12 and a half times more than the guy who makes 40,000. See, that is proportional giving. Giving is not like paying dues to a club where there is a flat rate. God doesn't really care. He doesn't really care how much you give. He is concerned with what you give depending on what He has given you. Proportion. Proportion. We're going to see this more as we get to 2 Corinthians 8. But there's one other thing taught in this text. And that is that Paul teaches there is to be accountability with the things given to the church. Notice what he says here um, in verse 3 he says, When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. This is important. This is really important. Money is such a snare. You know, when I came here, and I just said, "Listen, I don't want to have anything to do with money. I don't want to touch the money. I don't want to see the money. I don't want to control the money. I don't want to spend the money. You just do it. You know, let it snare someone else." And that's what I think. You know, I, I don't. I don't have anything to do with that. And we have a system here where multiple people collect the offering, multiple people count the offering, um, multiple people are needed to spend spend money you have to have you know two signatures on the checks why because we have a high degree of accountability why because the scriptures teach it it's modeled in the book you need to make sure you you go to a church where where somebody's there saying, well you don't need to know what's going on here we're 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 doing fine and well you know i, well, I want to see you know i mean what's the budget well, well it doesn't matter i mean what are we spending things on it's none of your business we're doing it for the glory of god that person should be fired That should be fired. That person has something to hide. In other words, they're, they're scamming the saints. And it's happened over and over and over again, as we know from all the scandals that have happened on TV. So, from this text right here, from 1 Corinthians 16 1 through 4. This is the background to our text in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And we learn these four principles that you can apply to your life and your giving. You are to give to help meet the needs of the saints. Second, your giving is to be regular and systematic. Third, your giving is to be proportional as to how the Lord has blessed you. And fourthly, you are to insist that the church be accountable with its finances. Now, the Corinthians were doing a great job after 1 Corinthians. They were setting aside money. They were giving it to the saints. And then the false teachers came in. And guess what happened? They quit giving. They quit giving. Now, you can always tell that false teaching always has fruit that it bears. It bears ungodliness as its fruit. And that is exactly what happened at Corinth. These men came in. They slandered Paul. Paul had to do the sorrowful visit and then the severe letter. And all of this happened and the the giving just ceased. If these guys were such great teachers, if they were men of God, then how come they weren't producing righteousness in the church? Instead, they were producing stinginess and hoarding. So Paul has to address this issue of giving. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, he does that. But since he has to deal with it, he figures he's going to really deal with it. You know, it's kind of like when you get to a phrase in a passage, and when you're a preacher, and that little phrase is so good, and even though it's just mentioned in passing, you just stop there and you just camp on it for a while. Because it's so good. And so Paul decides to do that. And so in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he lays out 21 different principles for giving. Now we've looked at a lot of these principles are the same ones we saw in Deuteronomy and Malachi and in Luke 12 and and we just saw in 1 Corinthians 16. And so what I want to do right now, and I usually don't like to do this, but I'm going to do it this morning, is I want to read these two chapters. This is a pretty big chunk, but I want to read this and just sit and listen to what's happening. Remember what's going on. Remember what has happened Remember the accountability. Remember the saints in Jerusalem. Remember how they stopped giving. And as I read this, the text will be very clear and plain to you for the most part. And then we'll look at some principles this morning, a few, and then next week we'll come back and finish up the rest. In chapter 8, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, Now brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in all love, we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you also, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who are the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, who puts the same earnestness on your behalf, In the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in the gracious work which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable not only in the of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We have seen with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of this great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you, for as for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches as a glory to Christ. Therefore, open before him the churches, show them proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that an Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if the Macedonians come to you come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead of you to and arrange before your previous promised bountiful gift, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift, and not a affected by covetousness. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness." You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many Thanksgivings to God because of the proof given by this ministry. They will glorify God for your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them all. While they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now that is a big passage and I read that because we are not going to do an exposition. We are going to do a thematic study study of these passages, and I want you to get the whole picture of what's going on here. But the first thing I want to look at from this text is found in verse 1 of chapter 8. And notice what he says here. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. The first principle we learn here is this, that giving is... A gracious work of God. Giving is God's grace flowing through a believer. That's kind of neat. God saves you by grace. He redeems you by grace. He sanctifies you by grace. And he pours his grace through you. So you become a blessing to other people. If you look at verses 1 and 2, Paul says that this grace is they're giving. They're giving. He says that in a great ordeal of affliction, and the abundance of their joy, speaking of the Macedonian believers, it overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. They gave. And Paul is saying that giving was the grace of God flowing through them. Now, if you look down at verses 6 and 7... Of chapter 8, notice what he says there. So we urge Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. And then he says in verse 7, But just as you abound in everything, and lists a bunch of things at the end of the verse, that you abound in this gracious work also. And he's talking about giving. Giving is the grace of God flowing through believers. Look down at chapter 9, verse 14. At the very end of chapter 9, verse 14. And notice what he says there. He says that by prayer in your behalf, these Jerusalem believers yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. And you're thinking, well, what is that? Well, if you look in verse 13, it was the liberality of your contribution to them all. If you want God's grace to flow through you, you want to be a generous giver. Because God has saved you to have his grace pour through you. This tells us that giving is the gracious work of God. It is a manifestation of God's grace in you. When you do a study of grace, you find out that Paul uses grace for, you know, you are saved by grace, uh, sanctified by grace. Um, He talks about all that he does is by grace. Everything we do is by grace, isn't it? It is. Because we have nothing except what was given us, it's all God's grace. We planted two trees in the front of our house last summer. Big, great big box trees, and uh, we stuck them in the mowing strip, and you know, we tried to keep them watered and stuff. And, and towards the end of the summer, we planted them in the heat of the summer. And towards the end of the summer, in August, when it was really hot, they started getting a little brown, and uh, they started shriveling up a little bit. And we thought, uh oh, they're not, they're not going to make it. And we kept watering them. And then, you know, when winter came here, or whatever you call it, when it gets to be down to fifty. Um, (Laughter) the leaves were still on those trees and it didn't look good and they never dropped their leaves and we thought oh no i think they i think they're dead but what was neat is is this spring they started sprouting and started budding and now they've got leaves all over them well those leaves are the manifestation of the life in that tree And this is exactly what Paul is saying here. If you are saved by grace, that grace will manifest itself in your life by you being a generous giver. Of course, if we went out there and there were still no buds on that tree and no leaves on that tree, we could assume that tree was dead. And the believer who says they know Christ, but who manifests no grace of God in their giving... Is probably dead and not a believer at all, because the grace of God is manifested through giving, among many other things. The second thing we learn from this text is found in chapter 8, verse 2. You can go back there. That giving should not be hindered by affliction. Now he's speaking of the Macedonians. The churches of Macedonia at the end of verse 1. He says of these churches in Macedonia. That in a great ordeal of affliction. They ended up having this abundance of joy. And overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. This tells us that. That affliction and hardship should never hinder our obedience to give. So often when we suffer trial, we become a little self-centered. We become the I, me, my. We begin to protect ourselves. And so we just quit giving because, you know, this is bad. This is happening. And so I need to protect myself. From what what might happen. And instead of trusting God through trials, we begin to trust our money. And it just manifests itself by these trials when they come upon us. The Corinthians, when they had a problem with the false teachers, what was the first thing that happened? They quit giving. They quit giving. And so it happens with many people today. But affliction should not stop you from manifesting God's grace in your life. Affliction is not an excuse to start disobeying God. You can still have an abundance of joy like these Macedonians, even in your affliction. This word affliction means is the same word used in the New Testament of the tribulation period. The word tribulation, thlipsis, is what it is in the Greek. Is the same word here. These people, it says, had a great ordeal of affliction. Incredible affliction. They were suffering, and they still gave. Which tells us, even though you may be afflicted, you don't have to disobey God. Affliction is not, you know, a a pass to disobey God for a while. You must still obey God in the area of giving, even in affliction. Not only that, if you look at that same verse, he not only says that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. I like the term he uses here. He doesn't just say poverty or that they were poor. He says deep poverty. In other words, these Macedonian Christians were not only severely afflicted, they were severely afflicted and rock bottom poor, is what he's saying here. Bottomed out poor, submerged in poverty. Deep, deep poverty. Now, when you think about that, this one here is really hard for people. Because, you know, when things are good and you got some extra money, you know, you might be t- you know, willing to give. And, and then when things start getting tight, you can begin to shut down God. I mean, that's the first thing that usually goes. Not your cable. <laughs> not your cell phone. Not your DSL service. God. Because you don't want to be dis, you know, inconvenienced, and so you shut down God instead of sacrificing it all. And what you need to understand, and I just want to talk about this for a minute, is there is a great difference between debt and obligation. These people in Macedonia were poor because of circumstances that came upon them that they had no control over. We, on the other hand, can get ourselves into problems. Debt is, is something the Bible forgi- uh, forbids. You cannot be in debt. And what I mean by that is when you say, I will pay you this much, you better pay that much. When you, let's say, buy a house and you make a sign a contract to pay a payment... As long as you're meeting those obligations, that's fine. As soon as you don't make your house payment, you are in debt. You are sinning. The Bible tells us that to be in debt is a sin. It says, owe no man anything. It does not forbid obligations. You know, you can you can borrow money, you can use credit cards, you can you can have obligations and meet those obligations, and that's fine. But you are forbidden to be in debt, to be owing something, somebody, to break your word, to make an obligation and then not follow through. That would be wrong. And it would also be wrong if you made so many obligations and had so many things on credit that you could not obey God in the area of giving. That would be to... Overobligate yourself to the place of sin. And that's what happens. I have a lot of people come to me who, you know, are having marriage troubles. And, you know, how's your debt? Well, you know, I think we got, you know, twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars of their credit card debt. In addition to their cars and their house and their furniture and their new refrigerator and everything's on debt, every single thing. And these people, even if they saw an opportunity, even if they saw, like, you know, somebody in need and who just needed something a little that they can't give, they can't be generous. Why? Because they're so strapped by their obligation. And if that's you, what you need to do is you need to begin to lessen the obligations. You need to decide out what you actually need and what you actually want. God, it's okay if you have obligations. It's not okay if you're in debt, and it's not okay if you have obligations to the extent that you can't be generous and give. And so you need to take some inventory of your life and ask yourself, what is my problem? The Macedonian Christians were poor not because they over-obligated themselves. It was because of circumstances that came upon them which were out of their control, and they still gave. Paul says they gave even beyond their ability And so poverty is not an excuse not to give. Now I want to show you this, and this overlaps with another principle, and we are going to stop at this one last uh, principle here, but I want want you to turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12. Let's see, that is in the New Testament. Okay, Mark 12. Still in between Matthew and Luke. That's good. Mark 12, verse 41. Now, this is the story, and we know the story. This is uh, the story of the widow's might. Now, what's happening here is Jesus is sitting down and he's watching people give at the temple treasury. And this is what it says in verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. Jesus is just sitting there and he's watching people. And they're coming. And they're, they're giving. And some people are giving large sums. Now, how would you know that? How would you know that? Well, they're letting people know. One of the things that uh, the Pharisees like to do is, you know, if you had gold coins, a few gold coins, you'd take those all and, you know, change them all in for mites or whatever. Pennies. So then you could stand there and you know throw them in, throw them in, you know make a lot of racket. Look at me, look at me, look at me. You know it's like you get a you know twenty-five one-dollar bills and then wrap a hundred around it and carry it around with a you know money clip on it. You know, look at me. And that and that's what they did. That's why Jesus also said in another text, you know, make sure you don't sound the gong when you're giving. You know, boom, look at me. I'm giving to the Lord now, everybody watch, watch. So Jesus said there were these people, a lot of people, and they were coming, very rich people, and they were giving huge sums of money. Look at verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in... Two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Actually, a less than a cent. I think they're about a tenth of a cent each. Um, when I was in Israel, I got to see them. I almost bought one, but they're they're real little. They're you know about a quarter of the size of a dime, and they're copper and they're thin. They're they're just little tiny minuscule widow's mites, is what they they've been called now, just because of this parable right here. These small copper coins. So she puts in. You know, less than a penny. And in verse 43, Jesus calls his disciples, Come here, come here, come here, I want to tell you something. You know, and here's all these pompous people all dressed up in gold rings and gold chains with the eagle claw around their neck. And he says, Look at this. Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Now, that is a statement, isn't it? That is a statement. He says, this little widow put in more than all of these other people combined. And then he explains himself in verse 44. For they all put in out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty in That she put in all she owned, all she had to live on. She was a proportional giver. A proportional giver. She gave in proportion and beyond proportion. Now, do you see what, what this text is teaching? This is very important. You know, some of you may be poor. Some of you may be, you know, squeaking by. And you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I only give three bucks. Well, you may, if you put in your three bucks, give more than all the other people in this church combined. You and your three bucks, proportionally speaking, in God's sight. God doesn't care how much it is. He doesn't care if you give a million dollars. God doesn't even need the money. God needs you to respond in accordance with how he blesses you. That's what he wants from you. And that's what this widow teaches us. That even though she only gave a smidgen, she gave all she had, so in proportion, she let it all go. In one fell swoop to the Lord. And so, Jesus said... This woman put in more. She was abundantly in poverty. She was like the people of Macedonia had deep poverty. But she came, she realized, hey, what's two mites? You know, all I can buy is a piece of bubble gum with it. So she gives it all to the Lord. And Jesus says, now that person gave more than anyone else in God's sight. So the third principle we learn is that your poverty should not stop God's grace from flowing through you either. Oh, you may not be able to give as much in comparison to those who are rich, but in proportion you may be giving much more. So, what do we learn from this? Your giving is to be gracious because it's God's grace flowing through you. Your giving should not be hindered by affliction. And your giving should not be hindered by poverty. And we touched on already your giving should be proportional. We're going to see that again next week along with many other principles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is so crystal clear. It's so practical. We can see how you are teaching us important principles about stewardship. And Father, I just pray that no one here would leave feeling guilty um, unless they need to feel guilty. But Father, that um, that this series would not produce any giving out of compulsion, none whatsoever, not one penny. Father, you have blessed this church, and this church is is doing fine, and you've been so good and gracious to us, and the saints have responded in such a great way. So many people are giving so faithfully and sacrificially, and Father, we thank you for that. And Father, I just want to make sure that all of us just look at our hearts and look at our lives so that we would leave here being faithful stewards, that we would be rich towards you, that we would not let poverty or affliction or any circumstances cause us to disobey you. Father, we do want to obey you and we want your grace to flow through us so that we can be a blessing to other people. Father, we ask that you make Your grace, work in us in great ways that we might be a blessing to others. We pray this in your name. Amen.